It is a pleasure to be back with you all today, especially as this is our final week in our study through 1 John. And so I do thank you all for coming and pray that our study through 1 John has been as encouraging to you all as it has been um, in my own personal life. Uh, And it is a great pleasure then to get to come one last time to this text before us. Our focus this morning will be on verse 21, on the subject of idolatry. But as we get started, I would like to read 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, as it all really ties together. There, one last time we read, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is the word of God. Please be seated. The idea or the concept of supermarket psychology is not something that we talk a whole lot about every day. But it is something that every single one of us experiences every single time we set foot in a grocery store. For supermarket psychology, it's just that concept that explains the strategy behind the design of every supermarket, that explains why products are placed where they are, that explains how they can best manipulate you and me to buy certain brands and to buy more than we're planning on buying every time we go in. There's a reason then that when we go in, say, to Schnucks just down the street, that we're immediately confronted with what? Floral department. We immediately smell those scents. We immediately see those sights. The store then forces us to be funneled through the produce section. Again, why? Well, to force us to, to be awakened to those bright colors, to see the best, the, the best lit area of the store, and to then be told really implicitly that everything here is natural, everything here is beautiful, everything here is yours for the taking. Upon going through the produce section, we pass by the bakery, and at what point in time our, our sense of smell is awakened. And without us even realizing it, within those first few seconds we spend in a store, The designers have designed it in such a way to awaken every single one of our senses, to cause our saliva glands to begin to salivate, and to cause us to suddenly feel a bit hungrier than we were just 20 seconds ago. whole design, of course, again, is to then make you think you need more food than you actually need. Same design is seen then putting the dairy section to the very back to force you to pass by thousands of other products on your way to just grab a, a, a gallon of milk. The hope, of course, is that as you go back to the back of the store, suddenly you'll catch a glimpse of a sign that claims something is on sale when it really isn't. All the while, of course, making you think that you are a clever buyer, that you are in control when the reality is is that you are certainly being played because those products are placed at eye level. Those products are placed and designed with specific colors in mind to catch your attention, to make you think that, that you need this, that this won't be here next time you are here. We understand these basic tactics. And any time we become unaware of those tactics, our senses are awakened when we, say, are back in that same store with a little kid in tow. And suddenly we see just how effective those colors and those scents are. Because as soon as my kids enter into Schnucks, what do they see? They see a well-lit donut display. And immediately they think, Dad, I need that. And they will continue to badger me until I say, yeah, that's fine, whatever. And I end up buying something I was not planning on buying. Same thing is true when you take a kid down a cereal aisle, right? And and suddenly they start reaching for the kid cereals. Why? Well, because those kid cereals are placed at their eye level. Those kid cereals are used, are are designed with colors to attract the eye of a child. And so the kid as well is, is being played by the markets and being manipulated into thinking that they need this product. Now, as loving parents, when we're with our kids, we hopefully lovingly tell them no to most of those things. We admonish them and we say, keep your hands in the cart. We don't need that. We're here for these specific things. And we can understand as parents and as adults the importance of sticking to that budget, the importance of sticking to the list that you know you need for the coming week. Yet even with that list, it is easy to fall prey to those tactics because they're so subtle, because they're so clever. 
And so it's good to be reminded time and time again the fact that there is a game being played. It's good to be reminded of the fact that there is a design of those stores that causes us to spend more money than we intend on spending. As we come back to the book of 1 John one last time today, we see John is warning us about a similar tactic employed by the world. It's a tactic that revolves around a concept, again, that we might not think a lot about day in, day out, that idea of idolatry. And even though this is a word that does not come readily to mind every morning we wake up, we must understand, as John reminds us, that we are inundated daily with idolatry. We are reminded by John that daily, if this is not something we are actively fighting against, that we will fall prey to it. And before we realize it, our worldview will be shaped by that which is false, by that which is counter to the gospel. And so like a parent lovingly admonishing their child as they ride in the carton of grocery store to keep their hands in the cart, John, one last time, as a loving father, is telling us, telling his beloved children, keep your hands in the cart. Pay attention to the things I've told you. Do not fall prey to these same tactics that the world and Satan have employed since the fall of man. And by following this admonishment today, we'll see one last time what it takes to live out the life that John has so extensively explained. What it takes to live out a life that is truly in fellowship with the one that is far more beautiful, far more precious, far greater than anything this world has to offer. That is Jesus Christ himself. So my prayer as we go through this text this morning is we might be reminded of the reality of idolatry, what makes it so heinous, how it is a struggle all of us must face, and what it is John says we must do to fight it. With that being said, let me go and open us up in prayer, and we'll start exploring this often discussed topic in Scripture. Bow your heads in prayer with me, if you will. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, we come to a difficult text, a challenging conclusion to this letter. God, if we are not careful, it is easy to just gloss over this final warning given by John. And it is easy in our pride to assume that this does not really apply to us, that this is obvious, this is not something we need to be reminded of. And so, God, I pray that today you might open our eyes to that foolish assumption. I pray this morning we might be reminded of the fact that idolatry is not a sin reserved for the ancient Near East, nor was it reserved for John's day, but it is rampant in our own lives day in and day out, God. I pray that as a result of this morning we might walk away with a greater understanding of idolatry, that we might understand the fact that it is a problem in our lives and as such give us wisdom to identify our own idols. And ultimately, Lord, might we take heed of John's instruction. Might we understand why it is important to fight them and how we must fight against it as well. And all these things, God, our greatest desire is that you might be known better. Lord, our greatest desire is that we might see the real Jesus Christ. That we might see him for all of his beauty, for all of his power, for all of his worth, God that we too might live as proper citizens of the kingdom of light, God. We praise you and we pray all these things and ask for your blessing this morning, all according to your precious son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Once again, as we look at verse 21 of 1 John 5, we see that having explored the many themes that John has explored throughout these last five chapters, that he ends with this one final warning. This one final urge given to his beloved readers, again, people that he viewed as his own children, individuals he loved and he was concerned deeply over, specifically in light, that false teaching that threatened their, their health, that threatened their community. And as a sort of summary statement and summary warning in response to all those things, John, one last time, offers this surprising warning against idolatry. And if you're not familiar with this concept, it's easy to miss just how shocking of a warning this is. For idolatry was a a heinous, odious sin that's warned about time and time again in Scripture. So in order to understand John's warning, it's important to begin there and understanding just how or why idolatry is so dangerous, is so heinous. To see the heinous nature of this sin... It's, it's valuable to look back to a few different passages in the Old Testament, particularly where we see idolatry is both something that God commands against and something that is pictured in an entirely offensive manner. 
The commands against idolatry are, are given in abundance throughout the Old Testament, but perhaps the most famous example is found back in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, specifically chapter 20, we have those famous Ten Commandments, a passage many of you have read before. Those Ten Commandments given to the people of God following their exodus out of Egypt, commandments that are intended to remind them who they are and how they are to live. And in Exodus chapter 20, we see idolatry plays a a vital and foundational role in what is to identify these Israelites. We'll pick it up in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. There we read, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The fact that idolatry is really the first concern that God brings up when commanding his people should be something to awaken us to the danger of reality, to how much God hates this sin of idolatry. Of course, we must also understand that this command is not just found in Exodus 20. No, throughout the Old Testament, you see command after command after command given against this very particular sin that was rampant in that ancient world. You can read later in Exodus chapter 34. Or you can hear these words in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, again, foundational text concerning how the Israelites are to live. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, God, in speaking of the expectations he has for his people, says this, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He's a jealous God, otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Yet again, we're confronted with how serious God views idolatry. This sin is not just some passing sin. This sin brings about the wrath of God to the point where God threatens to wipe out his people if they fall into this pattern of idolatry. Time and time again, then, we we see this language used in the Old Testament, warning against this particular sin that John reminds his readers of as well. And in addition to these commands against idolatry, to help persuade us as God's people to see how vile it is, God in his infinite wisdom also gives us a number of of pictures of, of what idolatry can be compared to in the Old Testament. Pictures of other sins that are heinous, that are wicked, that are utterly despicable. There's a number of these pictures that are given, but two, I think, particularly helpful pictures are those of infidelity and political treason. These are two of the most common metaphors used to to compare idolatry to, to show us just how odious this is in the eyes of God. Speaking to that first picture, that of infidelity, we can hear the language of Exodus again. In Exodus chapter 34, we have this warning against idolatry. In Exodus 34, verses 13 through 16, There God says, in speaking about coming into this new promised land, He says, Rather, you are to tear down the altars and smash down sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. He's speaking of tearing down these idols. Verse 14, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. So you shall make for yourself no molten gods. Here God uses this this graphic language to warn against idolatry and he, he compares it to infidelity. To follow after other gods, God says, is to be like an unfaithful spouse. This same imagery is picked up time and time again throughout the Minor Prophets. And honestly, as as I was trying to figure out what passages to read this morning, it was a little troubling. 
Because a lot of those passages are shockingly graphic in painting how vile infidelity is in terms of idolatry in the eyes of God. But for the sake of recognizing that truth, I want to make sure we read at least one of these passages so that we better understand how vile this sin is in the eyes of God. One of those passages found in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 4, when describing the sin of idolatry, we read these words. Or Hosea chapter, th- uh, yeah, Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. There we read this. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away understanding. My people consult their wooden idols, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the top of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your bride commits adultery. I would read more, but I think we understand the picture here. Throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, this is the image that God uses to to show his people how vile idolatry is. It's compared to infidelity. It's compared to the act of an unfaithful spouse. This is something we can still appreciate today, and indeed, even in our culture in which we live, in the midst of all the rampant sin that characterizes our world, we still live in a world that despises infidelity. The average unbeliever understands just how wicked that act is. And yet it is that act that God chooses to compare to idolatry. In the same way, we see that same vile nature put on display when we consider that other picture of idolatry, that which, as I mentioned earlier, is compared to political treason. This is another way that God depicts the acts of idolatry in his people. One of these examples comes out of the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, of course, we have that story in which the Israelites are demanding a king so that they can be like the other nations. They no longer just want to be ruled by Yahweh. They want a human figure in front of them so they're not so different from those people that live in their midst. In response to this request, Samuel, mouthpiece of God, is upset. He is offended, and rightfully so. And yet in response to it, we see this exchange between God and Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. There we read, But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. For they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. You see, when these people demand another king, God says they are committing an act of treason for they're rejecting his kingship. They're rejecting his authority, his right to rule them. And as as such, they're committing treason. They're overthrowing the government. You see the same language and the same warnings picked up by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 17 through 19, where the prophet warns the people against putting their trust in Assyria putting their trust in Egypt, putting their trust in the military might and power of other nations. And time and time again, they're told, by doing this, Israel, by placing your trust in these political powers, you are guilty of treason. You are guilty of idolatry because ultimately you are saying, we need them for our protection. We need them for our success. You are denying God's power and you're accepting the power of these false gods and the form of political devotion. In both the pictures of infidelity and political treason, then we see things that we can still relate to today, don't we? We see things that we would still rightfully disdain. To be called a traitor today still carries with it a great amount of power, doesn't it? A great amount of weight. We understand this is something that none of us would want to be guilty of, just like none of us would want to be guilty of infidelity, of adultery. These pictures then help show just how vile the nature of idolatry is, but they also help show us how deep idolatry goes. For if we only read those commands against idolatry, say in Exodus chapter 20, we might make the mistake of thinking that idolatry is limited to that falling down physically before some idol, before some physical image. But these other passages show us it's, it's far more than that. 
It's a sin of the heart. Idolatry happens any time we are more devoted to, to someone else other than God. One author in defining idolatry along these lines says this, Idolatry is any attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. Again, just in case you missed it, idolatry can be defined as any attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. Every time the Israelites fell down before a statue, any time the Israelites sought out protection from another nation without God sending them that way, they were devoting themselves to someone else. They were seeking protection from someone else. They were doing something that looked reasonable in the eyes of their culture, but something that was odious before the face of God. And the same thing, of course, is true for any act of idolatry. For from the outside perspective, idolatry might look logical, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. It might look reasonable, it might look you are being wise in the eyes of the world, and yet before God, it is odious, it is heinous, it is wicked. And it invites the wrath of God. Understanding how serious of an offense idolatry is then, we turn our attention back to 1 John for a moment. And as we do so, many of us understand again just how shocking this final admonition is. For John has spoken a great deal on the love of God. John has spoken of a great deal of his confidence in these believers. And for the most part, this entire letter has been so encouraging. And then he ends with this strong admonition. An admonition against one of the most heinous sins in all of Scripture. As he does that then, many of us, of course, might be tempted to say, well, that's all well and good, John, but of course I would never do something that wicked. I mean, we get that idolatry is bad, but, but if we get that, if we see how vile it is as it's compared to treason, as it's compared to infidelity, well, why would we ever need to be warned against that? I would never stoop to that level. Surely this is a problem for the ancient past. But of course, as we ask that question, we ignore a reality that the Bible reminds us of time and time again. That reality is our second point, and that fact is, is that idolatry is a universal struggle. It is something that every single one of us will struggle with from here until we get to heaven. And we see that clearly as we read throughout all of Scripture. And we see that every people group struggles with this particular sin. We saw that already in the example of ancient Israel, didn't we? You can read through the pages of the Old Testament and see countless examples of the Israelites falling into that same trap over and over and over again. Literally falling down before foreign gods. Putting their, their devotion, putting their, their, their emphasis, their love on anyone and everyone outside of Yahweh. One of the most blatant examples of that, of course, comes back in the book of Exodus, something we've mentioned earlier. In the book of Exodus, chapter 32, after being brought out of Egypt, after seeing the almighty hand of God on display, and after being brought to Mount Sinai, what do the people of Israel immediately fall into? It's idolatry. For as Moses goes up on the mountain, the people get impatient. And they don't know what's going on. And to help calm them, to help settle down the camp, we have this shockingly foolish story in which they create a clear idol, the golden calf. The story is told in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. We'll pick it up in verse 2, where Aaron, the one who's left behind, is, is leading the people in this act of idolatry. And we read, Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. All the people tore off the gold rings which were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Anyone reading this story should be shocked and appalled by this heinous folly of the Israelites. To suggest that this calf is what's brought you out of Egypt, people, can you imagine something more offensive before God? 
And of course, as we read this folly, uh, this, this folly, as we read the sin, it's easy to ask, why would they ever do this? But of course, we have to remember where they're coming from. We have to remember that as foreign and bizarre as this was, this was what all of them were raised seeing around them. For each and every one of these Israelites were born and raised in Egypt. A place where all religion really revolved around this idolatry, this, this falling down in worship before these physical objects. And so while it's foreign to us, it was second nature to these early people. This is what they did when they worshipped. They needed this physical object, and so the Israelites were simply doing that which they knew best. But in so doing, they were committing a heinous sin. But still, we might say, what a foolish act, but, but something that was reserved for those ancient, uneducated types. Surely that was something the people of God got past, but of course, we read throughout the New Testament, we see idolatry is still a rampant problem, isn't it? Both in 1 John as well as throughout the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, idolatry plays a pretty significant role. It's a sin that the apostles are regularly warning their people against. You can see that in passages like 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul uses that exact example out of Exodus as a warning to the Corinthian believers. In essence, he says, Corinthians, you're in danger of doing the exact same thing. Not because they were making golden calf, but because they were guilty of other forms of immorality and other common forms of idolatry in the Corinthian culture. You see the same language brought up in passages like Ephesians 5. In fact, if you will turn with me to Ephesians 5. For there we see the same language used. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul describes how a Christian is not to live. In describing that lifestyle, we see these words. It says, But immorality, or any impurity, or greed, must not be even named among you as, it is, pro- as is proper amongst the saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here in this sort of summary statement, Paul takes these sins and he says, idolatry. Anyone who does these things ultimately is placing their hope in someone else and something else. This is idolatry. In the same way, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul draws that clear comparison between greed and idolatry. In fact, he says greed is idolatry. As we come to 1 John again, we see that John himself is deeply concerned about idolatry. Now here in 1 John chapter 5, John does not specifically name the sin. He does not speak directly to what idol they're falling before. But based off of everything we've seen in these first five chapters, I think it's safe to assume that the idolatry that concerns him is the idolatry of this false Christ that these false teachers are presenting. This Christ who's not fully God and fully man. And and John is saying if you're guilty of following after that Christ, well, you're following after a cheap imitation If you're presenting Christ in this empty manner, you are presenting an idol, something that is empty, something that is lifeless, something that cannot save you. John, despite being so confident in the salvation of his readers, despite being so encouraging throughout this time, understands that they too are in danger. He understands that they too live in a culture that is really characterized by idolatry, and so he He understands the need as a loving parent to warn his readers against this heinous, wicked, universal struggle. And by this point in time, I would hope that we could all understand that if it was a problem for the ancient Israelites, if it was a problem for the early church, that it's a problem for us today. And the question, believer, is not, do I have idols? The question is, what are my idols? Because I promise you, you have them. As John Calvin famously said, the mind is a perpetual forge of idols. This is a constant struggle for us. And if we're not deeply aware of those idols as they're being produced, we will fail to recognize them and they will devour us. And so the question we must ask ourselves then is, okay, well, where, where are those idols in my life? And this is a hard question to answer. Because we are naturally blind to these things. 
In the same way that the, the idolatry of the Israelites is obvious to us, but, but clearly subtle to them, the same thing is true for our own idols. We'll be blind to them, but anyone watching will be able to take a, a clear observation of what we're serving, what we're devoted to. There's a number of ways we can try to help ourselves through this process, help point out what idols we might be guilty of. One particularly helpful tactic is that which author David Powelson has written about extensively or wrote about extensively when he was still alive. In his 2003 book, Seeing with New Eyes, David Powelson gives a list of what he calls x-ray questions. These questions, he says, are intended to reveal our functional gods. Uh, Powelson here is speaking of that which truly motivates us, that thing which controls us, that thing which directs our emotions. His desire as a counselor was to understand why the people he was seeing in counseling were doing what they were doing. And so to help his counselees think through that and to help us think through it, he gives this list of questions that help reveal otherwise hidden motivations. We don't have time to read through all of them that Powelson references, but a few that I think are particularly helpful include questions like this. Where do you bank your hopes? What are you most hopeful for, believer? In the same way, what do you most fear? Maybe it's something you, you fear losing. What is that? What keeps you up at night? Another question would be, what do you think you need? Another way to phrase this is, I'll be okay as long as I have fill in the blank. How do you finish that question? Is it anything other than Christ? Well, if it's, it's an idol. One other question that he includes in his book that I think is so particularly relevant to our culture today is this. Who's coming into political power would make everything better. Powelson wrote this back in 2003, but understanding the direction our nation was, was heading, he said this, as cultural consensus breaks down, many inevitably will increasingly invest their hope in political power. Now again, he wrote this back in 2003, but I think it's safe to, to say that, that his prediction has come true. And many people in response to our turmoil have, have placed far too much hope in political powers and political parties and political candidates. And without realizing it, we become guilty of doing the same thing the Israelites did. We think we need someone else to save us. We think we need someone else to, to keep us afloat. And we put more of our trust in them than we do in God. Another author who wrote extensively on idolatry offers this question or offers this encouragement in trying to discover our idols. He says, all you need to do is look at your uncontrollable emotions. A question related to that is this idea of what immediately stirs up rage or bitterness the second it is challenged or threatened. I can definitely relate to this question. And I can think of, of clear examples in my own life where, where my idols have been revealed in this sort of context. One example that immediately came to my mind is something that happened to me um, when I was in seminary. This was my first go-around. And let me just confess to you that even when you're in seminary, you're, you're, you're able to sin. I don't know if you knew that, but it's possible. And at one point in time during seminary, I was pulled aside after class by a TA. And the TA accused me of cheating on a quiz. Now, I had not cheated on a quiz, if that's what you're thinking. But he was concerned over some evidence he thought he saw. I still I can't remember what evidence he saw. But he accused me of cheating. And I think I calmly responded in the moment to the accusation. But inside, I was furious. I was furious just by the mere suggestion that I cheated on some meaningless quiz. Not because I was worried about getting caught, but because I was so angered over the idea of someone questioning my integrity. And I remember thinking things like, who does this sad little TA think he is? He has no power here. He has no authority in this class. He's just like me. How dare he question me, someone he doesn't even know. I, I couldn't control my rage inside. I, I was so flabbergasted by that audacious statement. So much so, and my wife can attest to you, that I brought this story up so many times for the next number of weeks. To my wife, 
to my fellow students, to my friends, any peer who was willing to listen or at least pretending like they were listening. I would go on and on about how angered I was that my reputation was questioned, how angered I was that my integrity was under question. And in my anger, what was I revealing? Not that I cared about my integrity, but that I worshipped my reputation. And I couldn't stand the thought of someone questioning that. I worshipped myself in that moment. My wife shares of, of other similar struggles, and I assure you she, she encouraged me to tell this, or told me I could, maybe not encourage, but told me I could tell this. <laughs> My wife Jamie is a very godly woman, a tremendous wife, a tremendous mother. But she would admit to you that she can be guilty of having a bit of a temper at times. Now, she's improved a great deal over the years and continues to grow in this area. But she will quickly tell you that if, if you want to see that temper flare up, all you have to do is not question her integrity, but question my integrity, question my reputation. Because when she, as a loving wife, hears her husband question, that anger boils over very quickly. That concern becomes all-encompassing. And she is inwardly furious and fuming. Why? Is it because she just loves me that much? No, it's because her marriage is an idol to her at times. And this, too, is such a common idol in our culture. John Newton, that famous author of Amazing Grace, wrote on this reality of, of how a great spouse makes a great idol for so many believers. Because we begin to place all of our identity in that relationship. Same, too, can be said of, of how we view our, our family, how we view ourselves as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee. Without realizing it, we begin to invest all of our hope in that role that we play. And so when someone questions us in that role, when someone questions whether or not we are genuine in our love for our spouse, when someone questions whether or not we truly love our country, whether or not we're really the, the employee we state we are, we blow up internally. Because in that moment, our idols are being poked and pressed and prodded. And in that moment, we are just as foolish as the Israelites who worshipped a molten calf. And we're doing something that is just as wicked. And so, believer, just as that pastor I quoted earlier asked, I ask you, what, what immediately stirs up that rage in you? What stirs up that frustration? What is tied to those uncontrollable emotions? Where do you place your hope? Where do you place your hope and security? What do you most fear? Is it family? Is it career? Is it security? Is it finances? Is it your patriotism? Whatever it is, if it is not Christ, it is idolatry. And in light of everything we've already seen in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy, we must make sure that we are rooting out those idols. For they are wicked before the eyes of God, and they will devour you. They will destroy you. And so again, we come back to 1 John chapter 5. And in all humility, as we recognize the odious nature of sin, as we recognize the fact that it is a struggle that we have, the one question that remains is, okay, John, well, how do we fight it? For again, all John says here is, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And at first glance, it would appear as if John's not giving us a whole lot of help when it comes to strategies, when it comes to fighting this universal struggle. But when we step back from the text, and we understand what he's already said regarding the reality of Christ being the true God, I think what we ultimately are seeing here is John is actually employing the same strategy that so many other biblical authors employ in fighting idolatry. That strategy is the strategy of mocking idols, of viewing them in the light of reality, the light of God, and showing how despicable and how ridiculous these idols actually are. We see this strategy employed numerous times. One of the most famous is back in Isaiah chapter 44. In fact, turn with me back to Isaiah 44. For you see this, this strategy employed by the prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 44 already, in verses 6 through 11, the prophet is warning against this universal sin, this universal struggle. And to help remind his readers how foolish this is, 
he lays out the reality of idols. In Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 12, there we read, The man shapes iron into a cutting tool, and he does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with a strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails, so he drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood, he extends a measuring line, he outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself amongst the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and rain makes it grow. Then he becomes something for a man to burn. So it takes one of them and warms himself. And he makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts, as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Here we see a mocking portrait of idolatry. For it's this depiction, this storyline in which a person carefully is raising up cedars, carefully growing trees so that he can chop it down. And with one cedar, he chops it down and makes into a fire so that he can eat bread. But with the other cedar tree that's exactly like this last cedar tree, he, he breaks it down and carefully molds it. He shapes it into an idol that can sit in his house. An idol he can fall down before and say, you are my God, even though he has just done the work to create this thing. It's utterly foolish. For he's worshiping something that's dead. Something that clearly has done absolutely nothing for him. The psalmist in Psalm 115 employs the same strategy and speaks of the folly of, of forming something and then falling down before it as if it made you. As if it has provided you with anything. It's an utterly foolish act. For here we see created people making new things and then creating them as the creator or worshiping them as creator. As a result, the prophets are right to mock these idols. They're right to tell these people, you are acting in an absurd manner. And we too today are right to a certain extent in, in mocking the idols of our world and pointing out how these things can never fulfill you. These things can never ultimately provide for you. These are just things, people that will die themselves. So it is utterly foolish to place our trust in them. The problem we face, however, believer, is when our strategy against idolatry ends there. When it just ends with a mere mocking of what the world worships. The only way this strategy can be properly employed is when the other half of that strategy is also employed. Because we see in each of these cases, both with the prophets and ultimately in John, that these idols are not simply mocked for the sake of mocking, but they're always mocked in light of the reality of God. They're mocked in light of, of the true God who saves, the true God who provides. If we had time, we could see that in Isaiah chapter 40, but for the time being, let's go back to 1 John chapter 5 and we see here that John is doing just that. For going back to the passage we read a couple of weeks ago, which leads into this final warning, we read this, beginning in verse 19 of 1 John 5. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idol. As I think I mentioned in passing a few weeks ago, when, when John uses that word true, he's not distinguishing something true from false. He's distinguishing that which is real, that which is reality, that versus that which is an illusion. Jesus is the real God, meaning he is literally God. He doesn't just look like God or talk like God. He is God in the flesh. And so when we see God, or when we see Jesus, we see the real thing. We see the one who is living and breathing, who actually provides for us, the one who spoke us into existence. 
We see the one who is infinitely more beautiful than anything we could ever possibly make. We see one that has given us far more than we could ever possibly imagine. And it's in light of that real God that John then finishes his discussion and says, little children, guard yourself from that which is fake. Take those illusions away from you. Take away these cheap imitations and look back once again to Christ. For he alone will provide for you. He alone will, will keep you in the light. And as such, we really do see what is a fitting ending to, to what John has been laboring to, under, to help us understand throughout these five chapters. For throughout these five chapters, what John has done is, is paint these beautiful pictures of reality as God sees it. For these five chapters, John has labored to show us that flesh and blood of Jesus Christ John has brought out that spoken word that Jesus Christ gave us. John's spoken of these vivid images of the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. He's spoken of these vivid images of what it means to practically love our fellow believers versus hating our brothers. Time and time again, John has done that, which awakens the senses of the reader. That reminds us that we serve a God that has spoken to us, that speaks to us. It reminds us that we serve a Jesus Christ who bled and died and rose again for our salvation. And in so doing, he reminds us that this one Jesus Christ is the true God. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our service. Therefore, it is petty and it is foolish to turn to anything else that just attempts to imitate his love. There's so many practical lessons we can take from this type of warning as well as this strategy. For the loving language of John serves as a great model to all of us as we fight our own personal idols. For as you're tempted to fall into whatever idol you have, maybe it is your spouse. In the midst of that temptation, you can think, okay, my spouse is great, and you should think that. But that shall only then cause you to think, but how much greater is Christ? How much more beautiful is Christ? How much more loving is Christ? Ultimately, this marriage is great, but, it, but it ultimately, it's just to point me back to Christ. As you perhaps are tempted to, to fall into devotion to our political powers, you say, okay, it's great to be provided. It, it's great to see when God provides us with godly leaders. But again, it's just a mirror. It's just a reflection to the far greater, far more powerful God who ultimately protects us, who will ultimately deliver us. Regardless of what your idol is, as we're tempted to fall into it, it should just remind us of how much better Jesus is. And so we dig into the text. We dig into scripture. We remind ourselves how much better God is. We can think of similar application as parents. As parents, oftentimes, I, as a parent, oftentimes I'm overwhelmed by, as I think of all the idol, uh, idols that my own children will face in this world. And many parents fall into this temptation of simply mocking the world to their child. They're speaking of the shame and filth of this world to their child. But if that mocking and if that revelation is removed from the beauty of the gospel, well, then our warnings will just come across as harsh. And we'll just turn them towards another idol that seems more attractive in the moment. And so as parents, it's a reminder of, of shining equal light both on the folly of the world but also on the beauty of Christ that our children might see, be able to contrast themselves. Same application can be done as we think of evangelism. Same thing can be done as we think through so many of our own spiritual disciplines. All these things are to be done in such a way to cause us to not simply look at ourselves but look to Christ, the one who loves us, the one who knows us, the one who has saved us, and the one with whom we share fellowship if we are his children. There's so much more that could be said from 1 John, but, but as we close this today, I pray that you see the beauty of the true Christ. I pray you walk away from 1 John with a better understanding of the magnificence of the true gospel versus everything else. And I pray just as John hoped and prayed, that as a result of hearing his words, you too might share in that genuine fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with all of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I beg you to do that today. See in Christ your one true hope. See in Christ your one means of forgiveness. Repent of your sins and believe in him and be welcomed into his kingdom. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be reminded of the incomparable beauty of Christ in this gospel. 
Let us see in 1 John the beauty of the kingdom that Christ has inaugurated. And let us carefully guard ourselves against anything that is blocking our view of that light, of that glory. Let us reflect to the world not a life of idolatry, but a life that's been changed by our glorious King Jesus Christ. Here in a moment, we'll have an opportunity to take part in communion after I pray. And as we do this, I pray that you see this as an opportunity to put into practice exactly what John's been discussing. For as we come to take of this juice and a cracker, we're not doing it for the sake of of just eating and taking a drink. We're doing this as a reminder of the physical, real death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, as the band plays here in a moment, I encourage you to come forward and there's tables around. Partake in this moment. Let it be a reminder to you of the genuine love that is offered to us and that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. For those of you who have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you just stay in your seats. That you consider the offer of the gospel. And again, I pray that after this service, you might seek us out and ask us any questions you might have. That being said, though, let me close this in prayer so that we can partake in this act of communion together. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for these words of John. We thank you for the reminder that it serves to us, Lord, of the fact that regardless of how mature we are in the faith, regardless of how long we have been in the faith, that we are always threatened by idols. There is always that external threat as well as that internal threat. For we know that the second we take our eyes off of your son, Jesus Christ, our eyes will inevitably fall elsewhere. And in our fallen humanity, God, we are prone to worship those lesser things. We are prone to place our identities and those foolish, lifeless sources. And so, God, might you break us of that habit. Might we see how heinous of a sin idolatry is. Might we take that seriously. Give us eyes to see the idols that are in our own hearts, God. Cause us to be in the types of relationships here at Cape Bible Chapel, in which we are called out for our, for our idolatry, God. And in our brokenness, God, might we not simply sit in shame, Lord, but might we be reminded of the fact that you have loved us, that you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, for us, God. And in our conviction, God, might we ultimately be brought back to your son, Jesus. I pray that's exactly what happens now as we take part in this time of communion. Might it be a time of great fellowship for all of us, God. And if there's anyone here who has not yet known you, God, I pray for their salvation at this moment. We love you, God, and we praise you. We thank you for this book of 1 John. We thank you for this opportunity now. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.